SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. You're not too busy, are you? <laughs> no, sir. Not busy at all. Good man. You set him up and I'll knock him back, Lloyd. One by one. White man's burden, Lloyd. My man. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. Hello and welcome to Sequelcast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. We're looking at uh, a movie based off a Stephen King book. Since that does not narrow it down, it is one directed by Stanley Kubrick, the only, um, you know, Stephen King adaptation he did, but it's still pretty early as far as all those King films. I am talking about the Shining, released in 1980, screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Scatman Crothers, Danny Lloyd, with music by Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind, cinematography John Alcott, editor Ray Lovejoy, The Shining, with me is Alex. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. And Thrasher. Matt, just between you and me, we've got a very serious problem with the people taking care of this of this podcast. They turned out to be completely unreliable assholes. <laughs> so I heard about it, Pally, on the podcast. They were gonna do the shining. And I went, I took my axe and I sharpened it and i said i heard him do the two jakes and i didn't much care for it so they're gonna get what's coming to them that's my terrible it's all right saw it on the tv yeah jack nicholson is uh i i mean this this poster they have for on wikipedia is interesting it's the uk poster and it it's it has the famous here's johnny scene and it says the tide of terror that swept america is here so what yeah, this is like almost like an overwhelming topic to talk about because this is mm-hmm. like a film I've been obsessed. This is like probably the first movie I was actually obsessed with. Like, so many people are obsessed with it. Sure. And we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll, t- we'll touch on that documentary room. What is it? 237. Is that it? 231. Yeah. 231. Excuse me. Or the numbers all get confusing. It's kind of. Uh, and, but anyhow, yeah. 213. <laughs> but they changed it. Oh, no, it is 237. Never mind. Because it's the astral miles from the Earth to the moon, ergo imposing that Stanley Kubrick was indeed implicit in faking the moon landing. But we'll get to all that later. Yeah, there's a lot of conspiracy theories with The Shining and also with uh, Kubrick in general, as you hinted at. But yeah, I mean, this uh, is the first horror movie I remember seeing, and my family didn't like horror movies. But this was an exception for some reason. And uh, I, my sister and I and my family watched it we li- when we lived in Argentina. I would have been in, oh, probably second grade. I would, I would argue too young for this movie. Uh, but they would, I've gone into the way at length before. We just had us watch rated R movies from a, as a, uh, since I was a tot. And uh, I have to, watching this movie uh, after we've had the past year 
during COVID-19 and being stuck in the house. I think it has a really different flavor to it. And that's mm -hmm. part of the fun about <laughs> movies or any pieces of art is that the, the um, whether it's a painting or whatever, if you're watching it or you're looking at it, the painting doesn't change. But what's going on in your day, you know, can certainly affect how you interpret it. And, uh, and it, I don't know, it's just, this movie is a Stone Cold classic. And it, it is hard to talk about because so many people have talked about it. There's been so many books about it, a lot of different documentaries, one of which was done by Kubrick's daughter. Uh, let me hand it off to Thrasher. When did you first watch this? Was it on TV or? So, yeah, I did, I did some thinking. And as near as I can tell, I saw this for the first time when I was four or five. It had come on cable, and I re distinctly remember watching this with my dad. And I think I was too young to really understand anything that was happening on screen. So in my memory, in that memory, it's not a horror movie. It's just a bunch of goofy stuff. <laughs> and and strangely enough. I know I've seen this movie from beginning to end other times, but I can't remember any other time I've seen this movie from beginning to end. Uh, I like I know like it's one of those movies where if it's on TV, I'll stop and watch it regardless of where I come in. Uh, it's been parodied and referenced so many times. Yeah. And and that's something that was cool about rewatching it. So I'm visiting. So my whole family, extended family has been vaccinated. So we've we're, we have all gotten together uh, in the Outer Banks uh, this weekend. So I watched it last night with my cousin, Sarah, who's a huge Stephen King fan, reads all of his books with my cousin, Travis, his wife, and also with I think I think he is my grand nephew or second nephew or or, or or whatever who it has just turned thirteen, and we were all like watching this and talking about it, and that was one of the things he said. It's like I've never seen this before, but I've seen every scene in this movie somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing is that like last night it was just it's so funny because like. This is a movie that I said, like I said, I've been obsessed with since I was a kid. And even like last night, I was like, should I even bother watching it in preparation for this episode? Like I've seen it so many times. I could, right. this, is, this is literally a movie I could rehearse verbatim, like word, word to word, scene by scene. Uh, I can hum all the damn music. Um, freaking DSRA is like one of the first things I learned how to play on the damn piano. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things. And like, so it's funny because so many of us, I think, who came of age around the same time saw this at such a bizarrely young age. And it's weird because it's, it's violent. It's got, you know, nudity and sex and everything like that. But it's, there's this otherness to it that you just can't put your finger on where it doesn't feel like it's like inappropriate. You know, like there's like, there's, there's a, there's this artfulness to it. And it also kind of just slides into like the horror pantheon, you know what I mean? And like, I remember, you know, I was probably in third, I, no, I, I wasn't probably, I was, I was in third grade when I saw this and, you know, they didn't skim over like the, the boob scenes or there, they didn't like, you know, cover the screen once Gatman Crothers gets axed or anything like that. And yet it's just all like, it's just so goddamn resonant. And, um, I mean, even from the opening credits, it's like that music. And I feel like Wendy Carlos should get like a co-authorship credit alongside Stanley Kubrick because she is definitely like a huge part of why this movie is so successful. Between this and Clockwork Orange, which he also did the, the score for, I mean, that adds so much to the film. And yeah, I guess recently uh, I had some family over and we went to the Timberline Lodge in uh, Oregon outside of Portland. And um, you go there up on Mount Hood and that's where the exteriors of the house was filmed. 
as as well as the shots of them driving to it were, were done in Oregon. Oh, and and so, something else, and you'll hear about this if you watch the uh, the the audio commentary for the Shining, the probably <laughs> the greatest parody of the Shining, which was on a Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. That hotel before this, shortly before this movie was filmed, Matt Groening's father directed like educational shorts and promotional films his family stayed in that hotel during an off season recording a promo for the hotel oh that's a bit of trivia i mean what's weird is you go to the hotel and even if you haven't seen the shining in a while you're like this is scary looking this is imposing i've seen this from somewhere and yet you go inside i i would think oh they're going to do a shining museum and, and it's not they have nothing in there that says it was used in the shining in uh, this time around, I did go to the gift shop and I did buy a Jack Nicholson shining T-shirt with him making the crazy face. And it has this kind of um, cool font on it. But I would think you would want to exploit that, even if it was just used for the exteriors. Uh, also, the, the scenes of them, the overhead shots of them driving in the woods, they had so much extra footage that Ridley Scott used some of it in the original uh, theatrical ending to Blade Runner. Yeah, there's there's so many connections this movie has, and it's it's when I first hear the conspiracy theories and stuff like that, I'm like, oh, that's stupid, and then I'm like, wait a minute, I I, I don't think you know Kubrick staged the moon landing or anything, but you know what? It's like if that's how you want to interpret this piece of art, that's totally up to you, and that's fucking awesome, whatever. Um, but there's a lot of shit going on here. <laughs> there's well, a lot think, of this movie. Well, I think it's in part because there there are so many like little inexplicable things. And so many, like, it, it is just bizarre enough when you're watching it. Everything is just off enough that I can totally understand looking at this and going, oh, no, what I'm seeing can't possibly be what the movie is about. It looks like it's, it looks like it's been encrypted. Yeah, you could say this film's about alcoholism, family discord, the um, extermination of indigenous people, um, Kubrick's confessional that he staged the moon landing and his, uh, you know, contentious relationship with NASA and the United States government. Um, you could also say it's a story about a family and you could all of those things are true. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's um, also, you know, it's a it's a ghost story. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a story about a haunted hotel. How about that? Yeah, it's – I guess we should start just talking about the, the movie it, itself and kind of going through it because it, it is one of these things. It does have a bit of a, a slow start. It doesn't start in the, the house right away. And yet, you know, a big thing about this movie that Stephen King didn't like, and we'll, we'll probably get into this more when we talk about the, the Shining 90s miniseries in the next few weeks – is uh, with Jack Nicholson in the lead and the way he acts, he all, he seems like he's a bit crazy from the get-go instead of being a more gradual thing. And yet but, when I saw this movie, this is the first time I ever saw Jack Nicholson for the first time. So I yeah, didn't know I think any better. Jack Nicholson. He just has those crazy eyebrows and those crazy gazes, you know what I mean? Well, his performance, like he's clearly, well, Jack Nicholson is always heightened, but like in his mm -hmm. performance, at least, you know, initially when he's doing the job interview and, and things like that, he's clearly playing somebody who's holding something back. Not necessarily craziness, but like frustration at the world, frustration at his creative failures. He's somebody holding back a frustration. 
yeah, this guy's about to boil over, you know, whether it's Mm -hmm. alcoholism, sobriety, um, you know, his his frustrations as a writer, his own artistic hangups, you know, this guy is about to pop, you can tell. And yet, I think as as the movie goes on and when the stuff, I mean, you, you look at all the stories, I mean, there, there's been recent, um, Shelley Duvall has been retired from acting for quite a bit, but she's had some um, interviews lately in, in uh, might have been Variety or Hollywood Reporter, one of, the, one of those big uh, papers. And she said, like, basically making this movie made her want to quit the business and she felt really traumatized. Uh, and, you know, Kubrick was famous for doing like hundreds and hundreds of takes until basically the actor stopped acting is what he wanted to see. Yeah, well, I have some thoughts on that. Well, I'll get to that later, I guess. Well, it's, it's funny. It's and great that you mentioned that because that was something that, that came up when we were watching it is that uh, my cousin's wife was like, you know, Shelley Duvall is such a terrible actress. And we, my family loves Shelley Duvall because we all grew up watching her on fairy tale theater. Yeah, but, thank you. Uh, but like I was explaining, oh, no, no, she's not being a bad actor. What you're seeing is the last take every time she says something that's the last take after like 40 takes of her being frustrated and just saying fuck it i'm not even going to try but also i think another thing too is that uh this is like one of my only like negative hang-ups i have with this film is the treatment of shelly to by stanley kubrick it feels almost vaguely misogynistic because i feel like he's just kind of purposely targeting her and like completely berating her to the point where like her hair is falling out of her head. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. and you see the footage, you know, it's like, come on, Shelly, we're fucking dying out here, you know? And that is not an easy role. You're carrying a kid, you're hyperventilating, you're reacting to everything, you're reacting sure. to what's happening off screen. Um, I think her performance is actually terrific. Um, it's, a un- it's, a, it's a punishing, unforgiving uh, role to take. And, um, and also there's kind of another th- a little undercurrent, I guess, is that um, people feel like Kubrick's casting of Shelley Duvall was kind of like a like an F.U. to um, Stephen King, among the many F.U.s in, in, in the film, if flying in the face of the original text, because uh, she- uh, uh, Wendy in the book is like described very much as like, this, you know, kind of a bombshell, you know, and then Kubrick kind of does the opposite. And I feel like that was kind of a fuck you. And it's kind of a dick move because Shelley Duvall in and of herself is a very beautiful woman. And I think that, like, that kind of, like, pseudo-contrast is kind of a dick move, you know? Well, it, I, that's something that I do actually do, like, like about them. Like, they, they, like, they very much seem like parents in the early 80s. Oh, totally, definitely. And the, the um, like, the color forms on the doors and everything like that and the sandwich. Yeah, it's like I remember most of that shit. Um well, and just how, like, all the kitchens and how the, the color was kind of like this uh, burnt orange and, like, faded yellows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that that seemed to be everywhere in the, the 80s. I mean, this came out, I was born in 82. This came out two years before I was born, but that certainly brought up memories. Or a lot of the overalls the boy wears, the, um, you know, you had televisions, but you had, I, and I, I'm glad there's no video games in this movie. Uh, although you had had him in the 80 but i mean that helps it seem a little bit more timeless i think it still is in an analog world in that sense you you had phones that didn't really work and and people might complain about the beginning setting up the house and you get a tour of the house but i mean it's it's something i feel like works better in the book maybe because that's the very first scene in the book is you get uh 
I was reading some of it last night. You get the, I'm going to say Jack Nicholson. I'm terrible with character names, but uh, Jack Torrance, excuse me. Uh, so you get Jack is being given a tour of the uh, facility by the, uh, um, was it Ol Stuart Ullman? Is that the guy that's the? Yeah, played by uh, Barry Nelson. Yeah, who's good at being very obnoxious. And <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and so that's oh, how sorry. the book opens. But you set, it's like you're setting up all this stuff about the house, and then when stuff goes crazy, then you're like, oh, yeah, they told me about this stuff in the house, and I wonder if they're going to go to this room or this room. So it, the house is a character is what I'm trying to say, more or less. Well, it goes it goes deeper than that because, like in in this movie, they when you get this tour, so much geography is set up, and mm -hmm. then the movie will be slowly discarding that geography to unnerve you later. Right, and it, one thing I find really interesting about the interview scene is that you have um, Bill Watson, the other like like Ullman's, you know, like assistant, pretty much. And like, if you get, I'm sure you guys can remember this uh, throughout the years. If you ever had a job interview, there's always like another like un silent unbudsman, you know, or like someone just kind of like there as a witness. And it's like that's the guy who's really interviewing you, you know, like that's mm. that's the guy who runs shit here, you know. He's not going to say anything or do anything, but he's going to just kind of like leer over to the side and maybe you know, uh, run interference for management, you know, and maybe it's my years of restaurant experience and hospitality and uh, restaurant hotel management or whatever. But it's, it is often where it's like, Hey, I have to interview someone. I need you to sit in on it with me. Cause you need that like witness. But there's a theory that um, like Stuart Altman is supposed to be like a, like the smiling representation of the United States government. And that the Bill Watson character is like the CIA NSA, like the, the muscle of the U S government. And basically, Jack Torrance or Jack Nicholson supposed to be like the the Kubrick surrogate as being approached to uh, stage the moon landing. Um, it, it's just fascinating because uh, the the Bill Watson character like is this really like kind of like non like very like no nonsense doesn't say much. There's like three lines of dialogue. It's a really weird phenomena. Again, I don't I don't I don't subscribe to this theory, but it's fucking interesting. Uh, Matt, you still there? Yes. Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just wasn't sure if you were going to say something, Thrasher. I just, I was just thinking that was a lot to take in. But I mean, yeah. I mean, what, what's interesting is Stanley Kubrick in in this film and some of his other ones, but I want to try to stick to The Shining, is big on. Um, it has a lot of surrealism, and yet because Kubrick loves this. Um, I was going to say slow, but it's certainly like it's like this deliberate pacing that it affects the viewer in a different way than say a David Lynch film, which might also have surrealism, but it has a lot of, you know, music or, or dancing or kind of dreamlike imagery. And in here it's just kind of unsettling because, uh, and part of what I like about it, they leave so much unanswered. You know, you could, that's why you, there's so many different kind of cult theories about this movie. And you could be like, oh, maybe this movie is all inside Jack's head because he's a writer, right? You can look at this so many different ways and whether you're right or wrong doesn't really matter in the end, but it, it well, keeps think, people talking about it all these years later. Well, I think that that's something that about sort of the, the different intent behind Stephen King's novel and the Stanley Kubrick movie is that it's, it's my understanding that, that in the novel, 
it is supposed to be ambiguous whether there are real ghosts haunting this place or whether this is all just some psychosis that exists in Jack's head. And that likewise, all of Danny's behavior is also because of possibly a hereditary psychosis. Whereas in this movie, it becomes pretty clear there actually is supernatural stuff going on. And that was the beginning of the of the tension between between Stephen King and the overwhelming success of this film. And I think that's another thing, too, is that this is very much like, this isn't from Jack's point of view, this is very much like a God's eye view, and it's established from the from the very, very beginning, you know, from that astounding helicopter shot where you're just kind of like this prowling presence, you know, and this dwarfed little, little uh, you know, Volkswagen in the landscape and the, the skittering voices, it's like the, you know, these, these like, you know, uh, it's giving me goosebumps just thinking about it, but the, the skittering little screams over the credits and everything like that. It's like uh, these like prowling uh, like demons of the past or something like that, prowling these people. And it's, it kind of echoes throughout the rest of the film where you're at this remove and you're, you know, you're at, don't, sometimes you're at Danny's point of view, sometimes you're at Wendy, sometimes you're at Jack's. And um, like you said, there's definitely like this is this isn't it doesn't feel very much. It doesn't feel implied like this is some real spooky shit going on. And you can, you know, communicate telekinetically and all this other stuff. Okay, so demons from the past. There are moments where this movie really does approach parody because like even like during during the whole setup, it's every red flag you could ever get for a a. Of, of sort of a, a mediocre horror movie like so 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 the overlook hotel okay isolated in the middle of nowhere but right. look at its history 10 years ago a guy murdered his whole family with an axe and then committed suicide but also it is built over a, a native american burial ground also they have authentic indigenous american artifacts on the premises also, it was founded by a bunch of wealthy eccentrics who wanted to do stuff far away from law enforcement. <laughs> it's like checking every box off the list, you know? <laughs> it's like they're daring they're daring a horror movie to break out. Like they've given right. Jack and his family <laughs> very oh, oh and it's near and it's near possibly the Donner Trail. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Like I'm, I'm thinking like, what else is there? Like UFOs? Uh... There, there's enough material there to be to be the justification for like eight other horror movies. Yeah, it's like the the Simpsons parody. It's like it's not much of an exaggeration aside from the John Denver uh, Christmas specials. <laughs> We're one step away from a John Denver Christmas special. Oh, something else that you mentioned on every Christmas special. So, like, you know, there are, like, a lot of TVs, but when it comes down to it, all we really ever see on the TVs are either local news broadcasts or, like, cartoons. And I absolutely love that they keep referring back to very specifically to Warner Brothers cartoons. Danny's nickname is Doc from What's Up, Doc. Scatman Carruthers, who had a very very good career as a voice actor in cartoons before this movie and would go on to do that after like before this movie with like Hong Kong Fooey and 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 uh, Ralph Bakshi's Coonskin but then after this movie would have Jazz and Transformers among a lot of other awesome roles uh and we keep and they also keep like cutting back to the old Roadrunner show which had this awesome theme song about the Roadrunner chasing the coyote and and even then it's it's like 
even that is foreshadowing because when when Jack finally breaks and is chasing the family with the axe, what is it but an extended Roadrunner cartoon with murderous intent and bad stuff keeps happening to him because he is pursuing mm-hmm. these these guileless people. Yeah, see again, more connections, more more of these, you know, like insane referential uh, tethers. It's uh, there's so much to unpack with this thing. Well, and I, the can't, film I can't help but feel that we're being dared to laugh at the horror that we're seeing. Right, there are certain things like that, and it's interesting because, um, like you said, all the stuff on TV and the film that they're watching, Wendy and Danny, and that scene is the film uh, Summer of '42. And um, 42 is another recurring thing. Again, I'm probably just, you know, sounding like a maniac. It's another thing because they also feel like that there's also theories that The Shining is very much also uh, referencing the Holocaust as well. Mm. Which is, uh, I won't even go there. But, um, but yeah, no, it it is almost like uh, Kubrick is like courting the horror genre. And it almost kind of feels like... Um, He's not dismissive of it, but he's not entirely, um, I don't know, it's, it's weird. Like, he's doing a thing without doing a thing, I guess. So, so it's like, it's like, it's like certain kinds of, uh, freeform and conceptual jazz. You have to listen to the notes they aren't playing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which it sounds like, you know, it sounds like such a, uh, like a critical cliche, but it's, it's true though. You know, it's, it's a, it's a good, it's a very valid point. Or see, it's like poetry. It, it rhymes. <laughs> Watching this movie again, a thing I was reminded of in a way was hello. Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, I thought I heard Me whispering. Too. Uh, the Shining. Oh, I know what that was. I had to. I, the the back of my head itched, and I, I'm using a different microphone. I think the the other microphone picked that up. I see. I was resting my foot on the gravestone of uh, my Native American burial ground in my basement. You know, it might uh, uh, disturb some spirits, you know. Right. Ooh. No, you know, with the family and their deterioration or Jack's deterioration over time, it tended to remind me of like a lot of family vacations I had as a kid where instead of being in your house, which is familiar, you're in a hotel for a few days at, at the beach or what have you. And because everything is such close quarters, I think you tend to get in each other's nerves more. Mm. Oh, totally. And it made me sort of think of The Shining on one level, like what if you were in this? Because the house is big, but at a certain point you, I don't know, start to get bored or start to look around, start to do other stuff. And just his, when when Jack has his mental deterioration and, and just goes for it, I mean, you can tell Nicholson is just having a ball getting to play. I mean, you talk about heightened, just the, the killer thing running and screaming, and I can't... And it, it's such a gift on uh, the... On most of... I think almost all the releases of this, it comes with the special feature that you and I and Alex were talking about uh, off mic. That's a documentary directed by uh, one of Stanley Kubrick's daughters. Hmm. And it's about 30 minutes... Well, it's under an hour, definitely. I haven't seen it in a long time, but it's really fly in the wall cinematography you are there and it's a lot of jack nicholson being flirty and kind of silly in his <laughs> dressing room looking in the mirror 
there's uh, one scene I love where they're rehearsing the, uh, you know, the here's Johnny scene. And it's just Jack Nicholson, like, jogging in place, like, <laughs> with, like, holding his axe in his hand. Like, he's doing, like, this little, like, pre-scene workout. And it's, like, kind of adorable. It's it's very amusing. Oh, so that was another thing. So my my second cousin, I'm glad you, you brought up the here's, here's Johnny scene, is that, like, that happens. It's like, I, I don't get why he says here's Johnny. His name isn't John. Uh, and what, and, and we, I had, I had to explain the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And oh, I totally didn't get that. Oh yeah. I, I told He's probably never seen Johnny Carson, even in a parody, but you know, I grew up in the tail end of Johnny Carson's TV career and saw him referenced constantly. So it's, it's fascinating. Like when that kind of ref, that cultural touchstone gets lost. And I'm also thinking like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure catchphrases like that are big enough that you could you could do that in a contemporary movie. Well, I mean, at the time, Johnny Carson. I mean, I, I say it like that. I mean, I was a child when this movie. I wasn't born when this came out. But you know, I didn't get that as a kid. Also, my family never watched late night TV. If they did, it would be Saturday Night Live. But they didn't watch that every week necessarily. So, and I don't think they even explained what that meant to me. So it's just sort of. And may, I thought maybe Johnny might have been the name of a ghost or something, but uh, it's funny too because I, I did watch a lot of Carson reruns as a kid, but I don't think it was the ones that had that "Here's Johnny" intro. Um, I just figured it was a thing like you know Richard can be Dick, James can be Jim. I was like maybe maybe you know oh yeah John whatever right oh and you um. But for for context, kind of like you were, you were saying, Thrasher, I'm glad you said this. Hold on, my cats are doing something uh, for being assholes. Uh, just a second. I hope it's entertaining, though. Oh, I'm sure it is. If not, very adorable. Um, it's interesting, though, because the, um, this is like uh, this this film's also like a uh, two hour two and a half hour infomercial for like how to get the most mileage out of a Steadicam. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of it. Oh, yeah. And also, like, when you watch this as a kid, are you not just like, give me a big wheel right now and drop me off in a hotel? Yes. God damn, that looks fun. Yeah, you're normally never allowed to ride those indoors, so, like... <laughs> oh, hell yeah. No, totally. Like, if that that was me, it'd be rollerblades or my skateboard or something. Well, even mm-hmm. then, like, it's, it's Danny, like, going in circles like a caged animal right at the boundaries of his environment. And he is literally going in circles at points and, and repeating himself. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you hear of some actors as their acting technique. I know Yul Brenner used this. He would model each performance after a different animal. Mm. And I wonder, I wonder if Nicholson had some of that going on. But with, uh, I was going to say with the Johnny Carson stuff, I mean, he was the only game in town, really. But now, although late night shows are still a thing uh, in the United States, uh, especially with you have cable services that do it. I mean, you have like at least a dozen different late night shows, and none well, of them not... have the impact as as Carson did because there's like, more of them. Well, yeah, they're they're not like they're not the cultural force they were, and even then, I'm not sure anybody truly embodies late night the way Carson did. I, I think I think for our generation, yeah. Conan O'Brien did for a time. But but even even then, I'm not sure. Like, if if you said, "Hey, late night talk show host, contemporary, go," I'm not sure anybody could name one. I think you get five different answers. I think you might, depending on the age, like you said. Carson, speaking of which, rest rest in peace, the Conan O'Brien show. I think it just went off the air as of this recording. Uh, 
Yeah, it bummer. did, but I think for HBO Max or something, he's he's doing a once a week show. He's going to do a variety show. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. And we'll curious. see how long he does that for. I thought he would want a little break, but it, it is my understanding that he that he just likes doing that kind of shows or he likes working that environment, but also he loves keeping good comedy writers and performers employed. So it's probably to roll over a lot of his staff into a new job as quickly as possible as well. Gotcha. And one week is less work than five shows a week or four shows a week, whatever it is he did when it um, moved to TBS, but that's a whole separate thing. But yeah, I mean, there's so much about the film here. Um, so, so we're all we're all writers. The first half yes. of this movie is this not the most realistic example of being a frustrated writer on film? <laughs> I, I think so, yeah, because it's writing's a weird kind of, and not to be too hoity-toity about it, weird kind of alchemy or something. You, you go, you sit down, you and, and words come out. You might have a, a plan, like an outline or, or notes, or you might just uh, do it by. Uh, you know, pull things out of your ass and just start writing. And it's, you know, they're all valid ways to do it. And it's, yeah, when, when you're stuck, it, it's really frustrating. But like when you're in the middle of it and in the, in the zone or whatever you want to call it, I mean, there's nothing like it. And, and the problem with, with writing, I think, as a um, artistic pursuit, I can do a painting. I can show it to a guy, hey, you want to see this painting? And they'll look at it and have opinion. But you write like a short story or a novel or something, give it to someone. Hey, you want to read this book? Like they might say they're going to do it, but they're not. You can't. They can't get feedback right away. You know. Right. I mean, it takes yeah. an effort. It takes a commitment. Yes, exactly. And, it's and funny what, too, like, um, oh, sorry, you go. Oh, just, and just one of the, the other like fascinating things about this is like some of the things he says about the craft of writing. It's like, it, well, actually, some of the stuff both he, uh, Jack, and his wife uh, Wendy say about the craft of writing are both like very accurate. And then at the same time, he'll also make excuses, which are sometimes the same excuses I make. <laughs> yeah. With a project. Oh, well, it's, it's also I'm funny too. <laughs> I also love his uh, reaction. He's like, "Yeah, what do you want me to do about that?" When she's like, "It's gonna snow tomorrow," he's like, "Oh yeah, that what is that my fault now?" What <laughs> he's an that, asshole! That yeah. bit, he's just like throwing the ball against the wall. Yeah, I've been there. Oh yeah, it was funny too because like so much of the like you know I guess I'm air quotes frustration moments look like a lot of fun. The hedge maze looks like a lot of fun. Riding your big wheel around looks like a lot of fun. Um, maybe again, I watched this as a kid a lot growing up, but um. I also think it's one of those things where it's like the buildup of I'm going to have the whole winter off. I'm going to write my novel. I'm going to write my novel. And it's like whenever you build something up, I feel like as a writer, whenever you have this great anticipation, it's like doesn't happen. You know what I mean? Like if you wanted me to review, I don't know, some new movie. Yeah, sure. No problem. If you wanted me to review a perfect example, if you wanted me to write a review of The Shining, I'd be like, oh, shit. You know, like this thing I've been obsessing over my whole life, I probably couldn't put Word One down. Or if you want me to do like Night of the Living Dead or Silence of the Lambs, you know, if you want me to review, you know, John Cassavetes' Shadows, yeah, sure, no problem. Well, I mean, that's but, the real lesson. Like a writer writes. Like the 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 key is not to come yeah. up with this perfect schedule, a perfect environment. The key is just to get down at your paper and get the thing on paper. Yeah, my, you know, the best ideas come to you when you're, you know, cooking bacon in the morning or you know, scratching your cat's head or something like that. It's never, you know, the, yeah. when you're looking out at the mountain in the snowy winter look hotel, you know, overlook hotel. 
Oh, yeah, I'm reminded of a quote I, I stumbled upon and, and just loved by uh, the late Douglas Adams, who wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, Dirk Gently, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, he said, I don't know if this is from an interview or from a, a book but he, he, of his, um, it takes an awful lot of effort not to write a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, it's really true, and you could apply it to a painting or if you're making a game or whatever you're doing, but like, it, it is procrastination that, that has a purpose in a way, but like it, at a certain point, you have to put your ass down on the seat or the couch and uh, open up the laptop and start typing away. It's, um, I, I mean, as far as process goes, I find it useful to, to do it early in the morning when people are still sleeping. So I'm not mm -hmm. bothering people. And more importantly, I'm not interrupted because to me, that just, I don't know about you guys, but like that pisses me off. Like I, if I'm in the zone in the middle of writing something and then I get asked, oh, where's the can of tomatoes? Like I totally lost what I was doing. Are those calumet potatoes? Right. Yes. The, the broken treaty <laughs> tomatoes. Yeah, that was another one. Um, again, I thought this was total nonsense when I first heard it. It's because when you first see the calumet baking powder containers... <laughs> They're turned in a certain way where you can read it. And then when you see them later, when Jack's, you know, brokering a deal with uh, Delbert Grady, it's they're, they're tilted away where it cuts off Calumet. And it's supposed to represent, because Calumet is, translates to, I guess, I think, Peace Pipe or something like that. And so when they're turned around and inverted, it's supposed to represent a broken tree, wink, wink. Well, and I'm like, that's, that's fucking dumb. Well, and well, then, but well, there's well, eight pictures of... Kubrick meticulously arranging the Calumet baking, uh, you know, freaking corn baking powder cans. I'm like, ah, why? Well, well on, on that subject, like, if that is the message of the movie, then that does make perfect sense. But, you know, I'm, I kind of apply a lot of, like, Occam's razor to, to interpreting, like, information in a work of art. And the reason they're turned meticulously one way in one scene and then another later is because it is reflective of, of, of Jack's madness and his breakdown. Because all throughout the movie, again, when we see, when we are given the geography of the hotel that will be intentionally discarded later, everything is in order, everything is just so. And throughout the film, all those things get disordered. Like the neatly arranged knives. They don't stay neatly arranged at the end of the movie. Yeah, the freaking, um, like the, the cake tins and stuff, you know, when he throws them off the shelf and all this other stuff. And, you know, like you said, um, you know, it, it could either just be uh, coincidence or whatever, but there's a lot of weird coincidences throughout this film. There's a lot of weird uh, symbolic little, um, not so much Easter eggs, but just little furnishings about, or like, you know, when Danny's on the, the rug, I'm not going to get into the launch pad thing because that's too much, but um, when the ball roll, rolls towards them, he gets up and the hexagonal pattern has him trapped in, but when you see him get up, he's facing in the different direction of the hexagonal pattern. So it's almost like he's like this wealth of knowledge is opened up to him now that he's being beckoned into room 237. And yet even that hexagonal pattern, like you can buy that on a t-shirt now that's just the pattern. And oh, a lot yeah. of people, people will, like will know it's the shining. Oh, that that is fascinating because that was just the carpet that the hotel had, as I understand it. But there was somebody a few years ago who, when when like geek chic became a big thing, and every you could be a nerd about whatever you wanted very publicly, um, there was a person who made fabric with that pattern, so you could make clothing with that pattern, nice. and that pattern 
apparently that pattern, the copyright on it, is still owned by the textile manufacturer that put in those carpets. And mm-hmm. like they hadn't they they hadn't used it in like decades because like it was just kind of a one off thing. And it right. was installed in this hotel and one or two other locations, and then they went on to new patterns with new colors for new seasons. But then suddenly that pattern became a commodity again. So they kind of brought it out of mothballs and they sued everybody who was making stuff with that. Ah! Right. I mean, ah. we had we had something here in uh, in Portland, Oregon, where the airport had this really ugly carpet, and then they were going to replace it, and all these people complained. And so what the city did rather smartly uh, is, or whoever owns the airport. Um, is they cut the old Portland airport carpet into swatches and sold them. Nice. And, and like now they go on eBay, but you can even get like a chocolate bar that has the design of the old carpet in it. <laughs> I, in retrospect, I wish I would have bought one, but they replaced it with like a somehow an uglier carpet, like <laughs> which is kind of the crate. Like this is what they're replacing it with. Um, do it again. But with the film, I mean, you know, Jack Nicholson is so iconic in this. But but looking through some some notes here, some actors considered inclu- were included uh, Robert De Niro, Harrison Ford, and Robin Williams. And Robin Williams, I think, actually could have been pretty good in this. You, you that, know, wow, I didn't even know that. But in my head, like after like after watching this movie, I was looking up, I was pre looking up quotes we could use on the show. And the very first thing that came into my head would it would be hilarious to hear Robin Williams do this until it became terrifying to hear Robin yes, Williams yeah. do this. And, and later in his career, Williams would do things like one hour photo and do kind of some uh, or uh, dead again, you know, or do some kind of darker parts. And I think he could have done it even this early in his career. Well, like that, that, that the careers would have had. Wow. Mm, yeah. That, he, that he went to Juilliard. That whole do yeah, you ever yeah. consider my responsibility speech would be terrifying coming from a screaming Robin Williams. Oh, totally. Wow. Yeah, it's a to think of what might have been. Um, hold on, keep talking. I got to get my cat again. I'm gonna. What if it was Al Pacino? Have you ever considered my responsibilities, Wendy? I'm home. Or maybe maybe it could have been Adam Sandler. Shabada shoo. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, oh hey, oh you better better give me the bat. Oh, put the bat down. Oh, don't swing the bat. Oh, Batman. Oh, oh boy. Hot by, hot by her. <laughs> or maybe if it was Jerry Lewis in the Overlook Hotel, oh, <laughs> the Wendy with the bat and the apron and everything. Oh boy. Or maybe you know he could have been played by Phil Silvers. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, what if it was played by Christopher Lee? I am a frustrated writer. It's the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> Get me a... Wendy, I'm home. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy indeed. I mean, I, I mean, like Christopher Lee could have done it, but I don't... It would have been even a worse problem than Jack Nicholson because you look at him and you think, oh, it's Dracula in a house. What's going to happen? Right. I, I fell in love with it right away when I came up here for my interview... It was as though I had been here before. Uh, yeah, no, walking would be good. Wendy, okay. give me, give me the bat, Wendy. Gotta, <laughs> yeah, you gotta, yeah, yeah. give me the bat. You, there's no other yeah. way around it. Welcome to Impressions, a podcast. Right, right. Um, movie dialogue and. But I'm think, I'm kind of thinking if if you're looking for someone kind of more buttoned down uh, at this time, uh, I think Richard Dreyfus could have also been good. Yeah, definitely. I could see him doing that for sure. And a mousy writer and Bob Newhart. 
We're the Spirit Hunters, and we're a show that treats Hunter Hunter and Yu Hakusho's author as the center of the universe. Some weeks, we do linguistic analysis. So the Chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine, but so the changed meaning in Japanese, it means to temper. Other times, we get absolutely smashed. So we take one shot every time. Yusuke uses the ray gun. One hour later. This is the least coherent episode. Oh, I'm Sarah, you're... I think you're firing this you can find out more about the Spirit Hunters right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Fans of video games, history, or video game history will definitely want to listen to Retronauts. Each week, Bob Mackey and myself, that's Jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today. Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network. I would like to see Richard Pryor do more dramatic stuff, actually. I could see John Cassavetes. Sure, that's a good one. Oh, we one. gotta we gotta talk about like Scatman Carruthers. I love that whole He's great in this. And yeah. he just gets dispatched so quickly. And mm. and I think because I that was okay, so that was something I was I was just like thinking about. Does his character count as a magic Negro? I don't think he does, despite the fact that he's a black dude with supernat with one supernatural power, the 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 shining, as he and his grandmother called it. Yeah, no, he has a character and he does he probably uh, gets the best acting out of the kid Danny, played by uh, oh yeah Danny uh, Lloyd. Danny I, I, good the kid is okay, but I think the scenes with Scatman Crothers, like there, there's kind of like a playfulness and, and kind of a focus there from from the the child actor to the adult, and he does the the Bugs Bunny thing, and um, I mean, I, it, it's my fault from watching this meme too much, but there's that really good one of The Shining where it's. Turned into a children's film. Oh no, we're shining or romantic. It's a light, a light family comedy. Uh, a family oh, yeah. comedy. Yeah, shining, and they do a lot of Scatman Crothers clips in there. But uh, <laughs> but but he he does a good job of like I like the humor that he brings to the role, and his work with the kid is good. And I wish he was in it more. Like it's there's quite a lot going on there. Yeah, Scatman Crothers has got a terrific energy, and um, you know, like him and Jack Nicholson were buds. That's why, I like, you know, uh, oh, from Cuckoo's Nest cool. and everything. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, he's got he's got a great voice, um, and I love the interaction where he asks him about Room Two Three Seven, and you can see that like warm charm of his. It just kind of goes away immediately. You know, it's just stay out. Like it's yeah, like this very scoldy tone. Yeah, but um, Best stay out of there. Exactly. And there's, uh, again, another um, fucking theory is like the just like pictures in a book line is um, believed to be a reference to Kubrick's uh, researching the Holocaust for his uh, screenplay for Aryan Papers. And I guess just like the research he conducted just was so horrifying, it really just depressed him. And that was the thing. And I think it was like it said that it's kind of him reconciling that uh, psychological damage that can happen. It's like it's just like pictures in a book. You know, they're not supposed to hurt you. Um, and the research well, I, for that also not just depressed Kubrick, but depressed Kubrick's wife because Kubrick would talk about it constantly and have all these papers littered around the house with, with the research. And it, Kubrick was thinking of doing it in, in the 90s, but then Steven Spielberg and Schindler's List and he felt like, oh, I don't think I should, you know, maybe I should do something else. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and then he, Spielberg too. Yeah, and, and so he pivoted to do uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Ding, ding, <laughs> ding. That's ding. a good fucking score too. <laughs> yes, but, but some something else about Scabbing Carruthers, like he he 
uh, his, his Halloran, the character clearly has like a, a real like inner life. But I love that bit where like it's just this wonderfully incongruous cut where like we see the TV between his feet and suddenly we're watching a news broadcast from Florida. And like it, it and it's completely disorienting. But I love that slow pullback and he's got those like gorgeous those like gorgeous like like photos, like the 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 tasteful the tasteful nudes. With the amazing afro. That's gotta be like record breaking. Well, like that, like coming out of the seventies, like that was a big thing. Like in the, in the seventies, there really was this explosion in oh, the yeah. of like black beauty. And like, and so like those pictures are like, those pictures are probably like eight years old at the time, but like, right. They, they stand out. They make a really strong statement. And I love that it, like it shows that some thought has gone into the world that Halloran inhabits and that the light, the life he leads. I always, yeah, I always felt like that kind of implies that, like, Halloran's, like, kind of a player, you know? Like, he probably has been to a few swinger parties in his time, you know? Oh, they probably like, have a hotel all the time. Yeah, but I also love that, like, he's down in Florida, and all that we get of Florida is basically this interior shot of him watching a TV. And it reminds you that, like, fly from Florida 5 or something like that. And then another, like, shot, it looks like it's from, like, a Michael Mann movie where he's, uh, what he's calling his buddy, um, when he's trying to get in touch with the guys at the Overlook on the phone with, like, the blue light jutting in from the Venetian lines. You know, there's no palm trees, there's sunny light or anything like that because it would just be too much of a, of a divergence from the, the, the icy uh, isolation of the Overlook, you know. And I think it's smart to in- interiorize Florida, you know. Well, I think also it's it's established that like a storm is coming through Florida, and that kind of creates a nice parallel action between like the tropical storm in Florida and then the blizzard right. that is happening at the Overlook. Exactly. And just so, like that's when like the heartbeat starts ramping up on the score too. You know, you get the thump 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 thump. It's such a it's it, the that score is like everything. If you change the score of that movie, the movie's done. It's, it's in the toilet. Like, you know, visual craft and everything, sure, but without that score, it's it's nothing. Right. Um there's an infamous scene in this I want to talk about where it's sort of the, the the party scene where he's at the bar and there's a brief glimpse you see of a man dressed as a dog. Giving oh, we call that BJ the Bear. Yeah, BJ God. the Bear. You get the the blowjob scene, and it's not explicit. I don't think I, I must not have realized what was going on as a child when I watched it. And yet, I, I've seen some people on on Twitter uh, recently go back and forth, where like in the movie, it's not credited who that is, and no one's been able to find out what actor played that part. Oh, who's in the costume? You mean? Yeah, who's in the costume of the dog? Interesting. Of the dog man. I, so I mean, I think that almost sounds like that could be like a book or a documentary in itself. Like, who is the dog man? <laughs> Well, and like, that I just... feel like we would yeah, find yeah. out that it was either Kubrick or Jack Nicholson. It's not Kubrick. No, no way. Uh, Alex, no, I, like, I feel like we'll find that out oh, one day. Yeah. I don't know. If... <laughs> it was like, that was one of the most, like, the, that scene and the damn twins, I feel like, are the two most, yes. like, key parts of them. Because also, like, with the, like, again, when I first saw it, I didn't know what was going on. But what the fuck is that? Because it's not, like, it doesn't look like a dog or a bear. It looks like, like, a, like a warthog bear dog. It's like man bear pig or something. Yes. It's, like, it's got, there's, like, tusks, right? Mm-hmm. But it's got, like, berry features, but it's definitely, like, of the hound variety. 
and it's just fucking terrifying. And, you know, it obviously looks like he's there's some fellatio going on. Um, but, like, just they're so incongruous to, like, anything you know in, in life. You know what I mean? There's, like, like what the fuck is it? It's a, it's a very disturbing scene. And then there's those goddamn twins. I think I think it, at least among the fandom, it's referred to as Roger the Dog Man. Roger the Dog Man, I like that. So uh, maybe the actor that played him is Roger Dogman, but <laughs> that the, would be hilarious. But it, but yeah, with that scene with the twins, I, I, I'm with you, Alex. That's it's it's a brief scene. It's really memorable. All the blood that comes out oh of, of the elevator. It's not just a trickle. It's like it's a great a flood. Great great model shot and to see such sequences um we'll get into this in a few weeks when we talk about dr sleep i think but i like how some scenes from this movie the shining are recreated in the sequel dr sleep uh and yet i do not like how they're recreated in a pg-13 form in uh, ready player one (laughs) okay so I, I just did I just pulled up some some research. So according to okay, so assuming that the dog is in fact named Roger, then I then he was played by an Eddie O'Day. And Eddie O'Day okay. only has one other uh, one other credit from 1977 in the movie Fiona, which is a fictionalized autobiography of uh, Fiona Richmond. And she plays a character just called Buddy. Interesting. And it's and it's and it looks to be, it looks to be pretty much like a sexploitation sensationalized biography. Hmm. Very strange. So well, because well, because Kubrick wasn't he kind like he kind of obsessed with porn, uh, because of porn yes. chic in the seventies. I could totally see him. You know what we should do? We should get one crazy per- one one obscure person from a sexploitation movie in here. Let's do it. Well, right. and, and he was working a bit with the, the screenwriter Terry Southern, uh, who he worked on on Doctor Strangelove, and um, and such, and was thinking like, wow, the, these pornography. You know, this is a real movement where couples were going to movie theaters and and, and seeing a porno film, and it was more uh, mainstream, I think, in in a way that it probably should be. Um, and you and he said, well, we should do something like this, but like with real Hollywood actors, and and have like a real story in there, and. and I think you maybe get little bits and pieces of that in um, maybe the orgy scene in Eyes Wide Shut, but that's such a weird, removed kind of cold film. And yeah, I, I think I, I think Kubrick's just such a cold filmmaker. It wouldn't really like I, I, I couldn't picture him actually like achieving any like erotic uh, of any kind. You know what I mean? Like like you said yes. with uh, like Eyes Wide Shut and and this and like. Like I said, even when the the bathtub scene, like the the nudity, there's no like sensationalism to it. It's very, it's like it's almost like before she's a corpse. There's still something unnerving about it, whether it's the music or the lighting or just her kind of like expressionless face. Um, it's kind of matter of fact kind of like, too, the way the the camera is, and it just uh, yeah, exactly, yeah, it's very takes, plain, yeah. yeah, static framing. Well, even then, you know, we would be debating whether we're supposed to masturbate to it or discuss how it's really about the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> it's about yeah, our I, genocide. But I mean, that's 
there's so much unanswered with this film. And, and there's actually, I, I made sort of the, the David Lynch comparison about surrealism, but it turns out when, before Kubrick started shooting the movie, he did show the cast and crew David Lynch's film Eraserhead, his first feature, and said, I kind of want this film to feel like this. Yeah, which is, um, that's one credit that David Lynch is uh, very, very pleased with, and I could totally understand. I bet, yeah. Because, I mean, Eraserhead's very, if you think The Shining's abstract, at least there's, you know, kind of a central story you can hang on to before things go crazy. Right. But um, I, I, I don't know if it, if he said it's most abstract, but it, it's definitely what a debut of like, who the hell is this guy? Like, right. Like, where, like where, where does this come from? And uh-huh. I think the does achieve something um, analogous to Eraserhead in that you have something that's a horror film, but it's completely incongruous to the genre, and yet it belongs, it aligns itself with the genre. You know what I mean? Like, what is the shine? It doesn't have anything that really, like, again, like you said earlier, well, like the, you know, you've got the Indian burial ground and all the, you know, spooky shit, but like stylistically, it's it's completely like on, on its own uh, frequency. Um, but it is kind of funny though, because there's kind of like this cult of Kubrick. Um, and at the end of the day, yeah, sure, he was like a recluse and all this other stuff, and he's like this brilliant genius. But also, like, he was a real dude, you know, like he did watch other people's movies. He wasn't in this like ivory tower, mm-hmm. you know geniusing his way through the cosmos you know you you know he's a real director he, he you know helped on bond movies and you know he he likes david lynch and he used footage you know he let really scott used footage in blade runner you know it's um you know like he, he's not you know a freaking time traveling you know freaking cosmonaut uh making these perfect movies um i guess having said that though it's uh, it's funny though. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of weird theories around the film, but it's understandable though because it is something that you can really get hung up on, and it's 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 wild because like uh, seeing it at such a young age, it was like usually you know when you're that age, you watch a movie for half an hour, then the Legos come out or you color or you start scribbling. This one, no, I was I was in it to win it, start to finish, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing as an adult, like if like you said, well, when it comes on, you watch it. It's it's that kind of movie. Yeah, I don't know where I was going with all that, but I mean, so I don't know. We've mentioned we've talked this to uh, almost to death. I think before we move on, though, I do want to talk about the ending to the film, if you think it works, because it it bothered me as a kid, and it still kind of bothers me. Like I don't think it quite works as an ending. So so you have you know the Jack goes crazy. And he tries to to kill his family, and he's running around and all this stuff. And yet, the final shot is kind of this kind of I don't know. It almost feels like trying to be a twist ending that's too obvious. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts about it? I I would not call it a twist. I think that's the thing that saves it for me. If if the because I love that slow dolly into the old photo of like the party, the July Fourth party, and like night in 1921 and we see that jack is in that photo it would be one thing if that just came out of nowhere it would be just worst hand out of a grave moment but we are flat out told in the job interview feels like i've always been here like it's yeah that's because that echoes something that's that is said in the beginning of the movie I think I I think it's a nice little moment. I don't think it has the impact of like a big dramatic reveal, but it's a nice little button. 
and and that I can respect. Yeah, I think um, the thing is, is that the I I think it, I love it. Um, and the whole theme of like the maze, it's like the Minotaur, you know, um, and. Again, it's like it feels uh, consistent, you know, with Danny big wheeling around and that this um, hotel is like this thing trying to consume you. And like at the end, you know, you've got all of it's like, you know, it kind of everything is going haywire by the end. You know, you've got all these skeletons and stuff. And it's like it's something like from like a freaking Goosebumps novel, but it works so in this weird way because you just get that this uh, this malevolent presence is just collapsing in on you. And um, and then you have. Jack, who's just kind of reduced to this like screaming primate. It's almost like 2001, you know what I mean? He's just going, and mm. um, and then you know, uh, Danny. And I, I, there's something I always admire too when you have kid actors in films that a aren't annoying and b are clever. And as he very cleverly gets his way out of there by you know following his own footsteps and erasing them as he goes. That is so. Yeah, and walking backwards to make that false dead end trail. Like that is such a perfect. Sierra LucasArts Dungeons yes, and Dragons puzzle. puzzle solution. I absolutely love it. Yeah, and it's so simple. It's like you know, it, not it's, to have a cliche, but like only a only a child could think of something so so simple yet brilliant. You know. No, it is true. It, it it does seem like something a kid who's not overthinking it would come up with. Yeah, totally. And there is a lot of backwards stuff in this, like um, uh, Wendy walking backwards up the stairs as Jack is. is Pursuing her, Danny walking backwards through the the hedge maze, um, just like a lot of weird shit. Um, I mean, it's like an understatement. Um, but uh, but yeah, and then the sting of Frozen Jack. It it's it was it's freaky, but it's also a little bit funny because he looks like he has this underbite. <laughs> What's well, an incongruous cut? But again, it's like they're daring you to laugh. Right. But it's also one of those things because, like, he's not like in a horrible like I'm killing you pose. It is like when you do die, you just like of cold. You just you sit down and you kind of huddle up for warmth because you kind of lose you disassociate from reality again, and you just want to and you want to just get warm. And what's crazy is when you're freezing to death, apparently you do start to feel really warm. Your brain floods you with endorphins, and you feel like you're nice and toasty and warming up right before your lungs and heart shut down. When there's been see, there's been a lot of not scenes, you know, there've been news stories of people where they're they die naked in the snow or die in their underwear in the snow because right, their body makes them think that they're warm and kind of a last ditch effort to. Well, sometimes they think they feel too hot and they will take. The, yeah, they, will take they rip the their clothes right, off. Right. Freaky, so, freaky, and uh, but yeah, the last shot. I don't. It's just it strikes me as a little bit too cutesy, and I'm not sure what I would have replaced it with. I, I do think. You know, when the film was originally screened, it was a few minutes longer, and they cut out an extra scene at the end that had uh, the wife and the kid in the hospital being told that, oh, Jack's body can't be found, and uh, which I think would have been worse. Oh, that's too much of a, of, of a grave, a hand coming out of a grave, yeah. Well, isn't there, wasn't that scene, didn't Stuart Ullman, like, hand Wendy, like, the ball or something like that? Yeah, yeah that, that's right, that's right, and hand yeah, her yeah. the tennis ball. Which, yeah, that would have yeah. been dumb, yeah. That would have been a, you know, a few too many notes, as they say in the movie Amadeus. But with um, we, it's been an hour, over an hour, talking about the movie. We need to wrap things up here. Obviously, I would say The Shining is sequel. Yes, if you haven't seen it, go see it right now. Um, it's also worth reading the Stephen King book and just as an exercise. Or I mean, it's a good book too. But um, 
pretty early book in his, his career, just to see how they're different. Um, and it, yeah, it, this was Stanley Kubrick, I think, financially. And uh, I wish he would have been here with us longer and maybe had another crack at the job to see how he would have done it differently mm. later in his career. Uh, Alex. Uh, sequel, no, this movie sucks. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, sequel, <laughs> yes. This, this, this is one of the best. I mean, like I said, uh, this is one of the first. This is a very formative film for me. Um, I've been, uh, you know, routinely obsessing over it for a better part of my life. And it's still, um, after seeing it countless times, it can still, uh, you know, deliver the thrills. Um, and also, just as a side note, I would recommend just go see Room 237 if you haven't seen it. It might sound like a bunch of crackpot theories, but it really opens up the way... I think it just kind of, like... It, it puts you into a weird fugue state yeah, where anything exactly. is possible. Exactly. It's an appendix. It's like, you know, when you read, like, Ulysses or something, there's, like, the appendixes and, like, you know, the, the critical insights. It's basically that. Um, and it really kind of gives you a different way of, like... Just it opens up this kind of Pandora's box of uh, how we interpret art. You know, like I said, one person says it's about Native American genocide, another person says it's about you know alcoholism. So it's a it's a brilliant and very um, singular film and a perfect companion to The Shining. I'm going to give this. I am going to give this a sequel. Yes, I think this is a, a, a delightfully singular movie. Definitely, definitely worth seeing. Definitely worth studying. Definitely worth thinking about. Um, it, it 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 makes me long for for more um, Shelley Duvall and everything. I just think she's a delight. But so, and something that that occurred to me. So look like so Stephen King's filmography, because before this he did there was the adaptation of Carrie in '76. There was a Salem's Lot miniseries uh, in '79. Then in '80, yep. The Shining comes out, and from that point forward, there's essentially a a minimum two Stephen King adaptations every year to the present day. And I, I think that that is owed entirely to this movie. The yeah. reason there are constant Stephen King projects is because of this film. Well, and when VCRs, right. And when VCRs became more popular and people had videotapes uh, that you could watch movies at their house over and over again, you know, um, it was pretty rare. I went to a friend's house where they didn't have the shining on video. This you know, it was just, it was always playing on TV. This is just, but you're right. I mean, this one, uh, along with those other early things you mentioned, you know, did kick off the Stephen King boom where there's always an adaptation of some sort, whether it's on TV, whether it's a, a movie or or even a TV show, you know, inspired by the, the books. You know, there's been a few of those. So, right, Stephen, yeah. And um, as we'll talk about in the next few weeks, We'll talk. Uh, spend two episodes talking about the Stephen yeah. King miniseries, *The Shining*, directed by Mick Garris, where Stephen King wrote the screenplay himself, and he did it specifically to make something closer off the book. Oh wow! I just noticed he, a Stephen King, wrote in *X Files*. He wrote the episode *Chinga*. He was rewritten right. a lot for that, but yes, uh, with the the doll, right? Yeah, I, uh, I just I just noticed that glancing at his filmography. Yeah. He was not happy with how that episode turned out. I guess he was uh, Chris Carter rewrote him a lot, but I, I do remember the marketing for that episode, an episode written by Stephen King. 
Oh, Ooh. something else I completely forgot to mention is that, you know, th- this book, the book was written when Stephen King was trying to recover from his own alcoholism. And yeah. so, like, the time this came out was a success. He was, he was pretty much sober. But then this movie made him Mr. Hollywood. And then that's when he got his cocaine habit. And then he would have to write other books about getting over his cocaine habit. <laughs> yeah, he had a few um, relapses of sorts, which aren't uncommon. And, I mean, yeah, that's part of why this book is so personal to him. And that yeah. he's annoyed that elements about Jack's alcoholism, but also um, it, it might get a mention in the movie. They definitely focus on it more in the miniseries about him, uh, Jack, breaking accidentally, like in, hitting his kid so hard that he uh, breaks his shoulder. Oh, that no, that's in the beginning is, yeah, he he pulled he pulled up uh, he pulled up his son, but pulled too hard and broke his collarbone. And that and that does and then that's echoed when when he gets attacked by the ghost in the in room two thirty seven and like they point out like his neck is bruised. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I love that his, yeah. his sweater is torn, but they never comment on it. But you see that his sweater is torn up before anything yeah. else, and like they just let that revelation come to you. Well, I mean, the focus on it is is much more different in the miniseries in the book. They kind of go into that more, and it's more. Uh, realistic uh, to i mean it's a weird word to say to describe the shining but we'll get into that uh-huh. when we talk about it next time uh, alex you're gonna say something oh it's also one of those things where it's like um you know kubrick is one of the Stanley kubrick is one of the first directors i was aware of by name growing up and also stephen king is one of the first writers i was aware of by name growing up and it's clearly not a coincidence it's because of the profound impact of this film and both of their works but yeah I mean, before the age 10, you know, I was fully aware of, of who Stanley Kubrick was and who Stephen King was. And that's really saying something, you know what I mean? Because, yeah. Definitely. Well, and to address Stephen King's sort of contentious relationship with Hollywood and adaptations of his work, he does have something. He does do something that I think is really cool. He has this thing called Dollar Babies, where yes. if you are an aspiring filmmaker, a student filmmaker, or a young filmmaker, he has a bank of short stories. He will sell you the exclusive one-year film rights for one of those short stories for a dollar. And you have to make a movie no within the year, and once you do, he gets the rights to that story back and can reset it. But there's a whole cottage industry of young and up-and-coming filmmakers doing these little Stephen King adaptations, and I just love that he's willing to sell the rights so cheap to make that possible. No, I wish I'd... Among other regrets I had, I wish I would have done one of those in college. I think we could have had fun with that. And um, I'm not sure he had started right when we were in college. No, he did. Oh, because Frank Darabont—that was one of his first things he did was a, a dollar hey, baby. Those are and pretty good. Yeah, there, there yeah. was a, there was a film festival of them not that long ago. I'm not sure if it was an online. It almost would have had to have been an online film festival, but uh, there are these uh, half-hour films, one to the woman in the room. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. There's even one of Children of the Corn of all things, which uh, no shit. Yeah, I like it. But hold on, I got to get my cat. <laughs> no, no, no! Oh my balls. You you know that's another that's another you know great bit of media is ow my balls from uh, idiot. Oh my balls! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, looking at the thing right now, the main character, an attorney by profession, spends endless hours with his terminally ill mother. Death is her only way out in this, and he's the only one that can help. The woman in the room. You know, like doing this, I feel like we ought to do a special episode about the shinning. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, that's like I would say of equal importance. <laughs> it's 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 Got a it. parody that's just as good as the original. I would say exactly. 
Exactly. And it achieves that perfect recipe of they want them to be funny and creepy. And the other thing is, unlike a lot of things, they're very blatant about what they're par- parodying. Don't you mean oh, shining? Yeah, exactly. Shut up, boy. Do you want to get sued? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Into the frozen ending, you know. Definitely. The Simpsons stuff is an uh, episode of The Shining, of course, is really good. Well, we're kind of running out of time here. I think we can skip the pitch a sequel and save it for next week's episode. I, I, I think that's fair. I mean, how do you do a sequel? Well, they did in Doctor Sleep, but yeah. Well, okay, that's true, but, but I still <laughs> right. have Yes, it's still a weird thing, but yeah, let's go on to what you're watching. Um, I'll start. So I, I had some uh, uh, surgery recently and was uh, needed to kill some time and still in the middle of recovering. So I watched something on the airplane flight back home. Uh, was uh, The Three Stooges, the 2012 film by the Ferrelli brothers. This didn't do so well. It, it, according to Wikipedia, it made $54.8 million off a $30 million budget. But I guess at one point they still were considering doing a sequel because um, maybe it, um, mm. I'm sure in video it did better. But at one point this was going to star uh, Benicio Del Toro as Mo, Sean Penn as Larry, and Jim Carrey as Curly. And I mean, that's good casting. That, that is great casting. And uh, Jim Carrey had gained 40 pounds and... One of the reasons I read online about why Jim Carrey didn't want to stick with it is he thought he'd have to gain another 40 pounds of weight because he didn't want to do the role in a fat suit and he didn't want to do that for health reasons, which mm-hmm. seems like kind of a cop-out. I don't know. But, like, I, Jim Carrey is curly. That's not the first thing I would have thought. But with Jim Carrey's physicality, I thought it would have been good. Um, regardless, in this movie, you know, we have a less famous cast of uh, Sean Hayes is Larry. Uh of Will and Grace fame. Uh, Will Sasso is Curly of Mad TV fame. There you go. And the guy, and the guy that plays Mo, who's actually really good in this, is uh, an actor whose name I'll probably mispronounce, Chris Diamantopoulos, who mm. I don't recognize from anything, but he's a Canadian-Greek actor, but with the wig and with he, he gets the voice right. And, and it, uh, Thrasher, have you seen this film? Regrettably, no. I keep wanting yeah. to, although interesting anecdote. So comedian and UCB co-founder Matt Besser, he is the grandson of Joe Besser, one of the Latter-day Stooges. Oh, yeah. He, he an earlier draft of this script had like cameos from like all the Stooges, anyone who would ever work with the Stooge. And he auditioned to play a version of his own grandfather for that version of the movie. And he actually did not get it. A different guy got cast and then they changed scripts and that part was dropped. Man. Yeah. I mean, so just to kind of, we might talk about this later in the show, but just to kind of bring some highlights of, of stuff I wasn't thrilled about with it. There's a lot in the beginning when they're kids, it tries to have a story, which I think is from the show, of them being orphans and them being in an orphanage and they have well, to raise money to save. Yeah, and having to raise money to save the orphanage, uh, which is the plot of the movie with them as adults, is in fact the same storyline as the Nintendo video game. And the Blues um, Brothers. Uh, yeah, yeah, ah. really, come to think of it. Um, and, and I'm sure it was... I'm not terribly familiar with that many of the shorts, but I'm sure they did something like this in one of the shorts as well. I bet you that's an homage of some sort. Uh, The lead cast, I think, does their best. um, But, you know, I think to try to appeal to younger people in this movie is kind of a mistake. Uh, I wish it was in black and white is one thing, but that's just Mm. me being a slut for black and white. Uh, The second thing is um, there's a whole big subplot of Mo joining the cast of Jersey Shore which by the time this came out in 2012 is already kind of old hat. And that really feels, uh, dates it a bit. 
So it, there's laughs to be had. Um, as one of the bad guys, you have uh, Craig Bureko and Sofia Vergara, and they really kind of throw themselves into the wackiness. And, and the Ferrelli brothers were a good choice to direct this. It's like it's on HBO uh, in the United States as of this recording in late June 2021. And I recommend you, you might as well see it. But like it's for me, it was kind of straight down the middle. Yeah, I had no idea that movie exists. The look at yeah, the market. I love the Stooges too. I think that I love yeah. the three Stooges. The, the marketing um, for it yeah. was terrible. Pretty bad. Yeah. It was all about like mm. the Jersey Shore stuff, or like uh, a, about a scene where Larry gets chomped in the balls by a lobster. <laughs> it is a big marketing part for this, which is weird. Ow, my balls, indeed. Yes, uh, which I'm feeling yeah. as a result of my surgery, not to get into it, but I just did. So, oof. Now I understand how Mr. Belvedere felt when he sat in his own. <laughs> oh? Oh, no, it was more of an oh! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Rasher, Doug Benson. Been watching? Okay, so I watched a delightful piece of trash. Um, You're the Hunter from the Future, starring Ooh. Reb Brown, who you may know from Space Mutiny and the Captain America TV movies from the late 70s. Uh, it is based on, I believe, an Italian comic book by uh, Eugenio Juan Zapparetto and Juan Zanotto. You can tell it's based on a comic book because, like, every 10 minutes, it's just like one self contained, very episodic story that could totally work as a comic book. But it's just, it's just so goofy. It's like a post apocalyptic future, but there are dinosaurs, and the paper mache dinosaur puppets are amazing. Like, they're not good, but they are bad in a very unique way. And this blonde hunter named Yor shows up, and he just kind of like every like 10 minutes, he meets a new tribe of people sometimes they hunt sometimes they fish what have you uh and this happens about seven times until he then discovers that there are these robots and that he is the he is in fact from this like enclave of high-tech people who live inside a mountain and have all this super technology and <laughs> it's just so like there is like no plot like the like once once all these sci-fi elements show up it just ends super quick i looked it up right when he said it and of course it was this not i thought it was you know y-o-u-r-e not y-o-r as in the name you're the hunter from the future yeah y-o-r um, and yeah this a looks amazing. that they keep reprising it's hilarious how does it go yeah this looks special it's like, you're, he's going to save us all, you're, and like, and it just, I, I feel like the song itself is only about a minute, because that seems to be all that they use, and it also <laughs> seems to have a definite ending. That reminds me a bit, there's a Jackie Chan film based off a, uh, a manga and anime called City Hunter, oh, yeah. and nearly, uh, it's where the famous kind of Jackie Chan Street Fighter 2 uh, gif and meme are from, where he dresses as Chun-Li and Guile and all these crazy things, oh, but... Yeah. But uh, but every time, almost like every time he is about to have an action scene, he like looks at the camera and you hear this like stain, City Hunter. <laughs> and they, they really uh, use that over and over and over again until like you laugh at it, you laugh at it, you don't laugh, and then you start laughing again. 
I mean, it's it. This is not a good movie. I'll admit, as goofy as it is, it is very, very boring at parts. I feel like just watch the first ten minutes and the last twenty, and you've seen a pretty fun movie. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also one of those movies where you will wonder how it never ended up on MST3K. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask because the way you describe it, that sounds like a, a natural. Like I feel like if it had gotten two more seasons on Netflix, it would have shown up. Uh, and who knows? They're hypothetically going to try to work out a thir- another season of the revival, so maybe it well, would show up. They hit their goal, but it's not going to be on Netflix. They're going to have their own yeah. Mystery Science Theater streaming service or something. A weird um, choice, but everyone's got a streaming mm-hmm. service now. We'll probably have one in a while. But um, if if it does down with that. your heart that this was never on MST3K, there is a Rift Tracks of it that's pretty good. Oh, well, that's something. That that makes sense. Cool. And Alex, what have you been watching? Um, I have been watching a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, since we're on the horror, I'm gonna go with that. I watched the the most recent uh, Conjuring film, The mm-hmm. Conjuring. The devil made me do it. So this is the third I... Conjuring film, but with all the spinoffs and and things in the Conjuring cinematic universe, you know, oh, yeah. about, like oh. movie, movie like eight. There, there's three with the Annabelle, right? With the doll. Yeah, there's three yeah. Annabelles, oh. three Warrens, and then like the two. New... Other ones, I think. There's the, the nun. Lorna. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the nun Lorna, yeah. Um, I wrote a uh, five word review on Letterboxd, and it's don't drag me into this. And that's a quote from the devil. <laughs> so I, I do like <laughs> so exorcism kind of movies. It. I do like exorcism kind of movies, and uh, I, I do like devil characters and kind of. In, I saw the first Conjuring, which I fell asleep through some of, but thought it was okay. Um, yeah, the first Conjuring I, I think is great. The second Conjuring I think is pretty damn good. Um, and this one, oh boy, no, this was not so good. And I think the biggest thing is that you don't have James Wan directing. James Wan's a pretty damn mm, good director. Um, yes. He knows how to fill a screen. He knows how to make things thrilling. And he also doesn't over-rely on CG graphics. Like, the first exorcism scene in this movie is, like, so over-the-top and like there's just so you can just like see the like you know you can see where they're like you know padding the the images to kind of like cover up the you know wire work and stuff like that you got people flying around and shit and it's like the reason why the first country was good is because you have this like credible haunted house story and it ramps up to the freaky deaky fly around zippy dip shit this just comes right out the right out the gate with it and it's like trying to do the thing where it's like you know be big loud and you know be be big big and loud at the start and you know get everyone's attention but it's just like and then it's just this nonsensical plot and the the plot from what i understood was the the true case of uh you know people are possessed and you know they do crazy shit like you know try to kill someone or, or they actually do kill someone and then it gets passed from someone else to someone else you know like that movie fallen with john goodman and denzel um and this just like it's just like freaking corkscrews and all these different nonsensical directions. And I point it's like, there's this little like, you know, like demonic visions. And it just looks like a bad Rob Zombie video from like the late nineties. And it just goes on for a really long time. And it's just, uh, it's not very good. I would not recommend <laughs> the conjuring. The devil made me do it. So you, you said it has possessions in it. Does it have the same devil voice for each possession? I don't even know if there's really much of a devil voice. Really? I think they just uh, freak out. Oh, they do. Now there's a devil voice. It's just, it just kind of feels like, like like a stock effect, you know? It's like, and you're like audio, mm-hmm. you know, editing, like devil two or devil one, you know? 
like, oh, I'm mad, you know? Yeah, it's um, it's boring. And the poster's boring. Look at the poster. It's just Patrick Wilson of Vera Farmesia. And they're very charming, and they have great chemistry, but even though they couldn't save this fucking clunker. No, Patrick Wilson is... Uh, I think he's underrated. He, he does a lot of good work, although he sometimes kind of plays characters that tend to fade into the background. Um, but, but yeah, I... I might watch it. Maybe I'll watch number two first. I just have to see what's available. I remember almost nothing about the uh, the second one, and I was kind of goofing around with some people online, and, and my sort of pitch for a Conjuring film was do a mockumentary about like what pieces of shit uh, the real Conjuring people were. Like, they were these real kind of charlatans. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think they do that. I mean, it's a really successful horror movie franchise, but... I think if you were to try to spoof it at least or do an airplane version of it, that's what I would do. But, uh, well, but anyhow, I'm, I'm shocked yeah. there hasn't been a parody like starring Kristen Wiig and Will Ferrell where they're like the Warrens, <laughs> but they are con artists, but then they have to fight a real demon. Right. Yeah. You, you're you seeing, I mean, they, they do so few parodies when it was really quite its own cottage industry. I did see a poster for Meet the Blacks 2, The Haunted House or something, a title, something <laughs> like that. And maybe they, they that'll have some. One of those? Um, I don't think it's out yet, but I've seen a poster for it. Yeah, because that's a parody of The Purge, right? And okay, you know, and this second one just seems like it's, yeah, it it it. I haven't seen either of them, but the second one's pretty recent, and I was kind of surprised there was a second one as well. So, and there's two Medea Halloweens, and. Uh, Tyler Perry said he oh, yeah. do Medea again, but they gave him a lot of money, so now he's doing another one for Netflix or something. So he knows where his bread is buttered. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's like the I love the quote of uh, Marlon Brando. He was interviewed on set of Superman, the motion picture that that one with Christopher Reeve, and uh, and they said, "Well, what do you think about this? Uh, all the is it true you're being paid all this money to do it?" And he said, "You know." So if in a movie, if I get paid $100,000, I do this kind of expression. And he's like not smiling. And he says like a million dollars, it's this kind of expression. And he does a huge smile. And then he says, and then for this Superman movie, I do this expression. He does this like this big Muppet smile. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, you know, the thing, too, is that like I was initially pumped for like, you know, more um, Ed and Lorraine Warren movies. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, just do like, you know, non-canonical spooky stories of these two guys. You know, because I like the cast, and I and I like, uh, for the most part, James Wan. But this one just goes right off the edge, and it's like, all right, let's pump the brakes on this a little bit. Okay. All right, we'll see. I mean, there's always, horror's always going to be around. I, um, they're going to, I was reading what they're going to be doing, a Hellraiser remake uh, with a female lead. And at the same time, Clive Barker's trying to do a Hellraiser uh, as a TV series. Which is funny, because aside from Pinhead, I thought Hellraiser was a female-led film. <laughs> you know, that's true. The first... Sure. The first two. Right. Good point. Well, my pets are all going to murder me. We should wrap this up. Before we do, we have okay. a sequel scene from The Shining. Yes, this is from uh, late in the first act. This is uh, Jack, Wendy, and Danny uh, in their car driving up to the Overlook. I want to play Danny. Uh, I'll do Wendy. I'll be Jack, but I'm not going to do a Jack Nicholson impression. I can't wait to hear what impression. You don't have to if you don't. You don't have to do a Jack Nicholson if you don't want to. Oh, I'll figure something out. Okay. Okay. All right. So uh, let's go. Action.
Hey, wasn't it around here that the Donner Party got snowbound? I think that was farther west in the Sierras. Oh. What was the Donner Party? They were a party of settlers in covered wagon times. They got snowbound one winter in the mountains. They had to resort to cannibalism in order to stay alive. You mean they ate each other up? They had to, in order to survive. Jack. Don't worry, Mom. I know all about cannibalism. I saw it on TV. See, it's okay. He saw it on the television. Boo. Good old droopy dog. You know <laughs> what? I'm gonna kill you with an axe. <laughs> Are you out of your fucking mind? Boo. All right. So next week, we will do... Uh, I think the way we should divvy up the, the shiny 90s miniseries is next week maybe talk about the first episode. Sounds cause good. Because that's, that's before they get to the house, pretty much. And the oh, cool. week after, yeah. we'll do the other two episodes is, is one thing. Sweet. So, um, yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. I, I saw it originally when it aired on TV, and it made me it helped to make me fail a geography test, but I'll tell that story next week. <laughs> um, for uh, sequel cast, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MATWBT um, and uh, check out episodes of the website at SequelCast2 and write a nice review on uh, the Apple Podcast app. All that helps with the downloads. Uh, some of our ratings, I, I look on Chartable and like we apparently are, are getting sort of popular among the movie review podcast section in places nice. like uh, the Philippines or or like uh, Germany. It's very strange where we tend to, what episodes tend to do well, but that's part of the fun. You release a podcast on the internet and the whole world can listen to it. Um, and uh, Thrasher? Well, um, my social media is in flux, so I have really nowhere to direct you to, but if you do want to support me, go to drivethroughrpg.com and purchase any of the 100 Oddities series from Skirmisher Publishing. And Alex? You can find me on Twitter at CrabNebula1914 and also drop by my YouTube channel, uh, The Trailer Project, featuring trailer commentaries and experimental short films as well. Very good. So uh, until next time, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. And this is Alex. Ah, shit. What? That would have been a perfect music cue. Yeah. That, that was You're the Hunter. <laughs> uh. Yep, you see. Uh, Sorry about that. So, words so, of wisdom, Lloyd, my man. Words yes. of wisdom. Uh, so this is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrash. <laughs> this is Johnny. Same. You've had your whole fucking life to think things over. What's good a few minutes more gonna do you now? It's okay, Mom. I have a fucking life. I watch TV. <laughs> Are you out of your fucking mind? I'm talking to an invisible bartender here. You're talking about some lady. I, I don't care to repeat what that one ghost said. My heart is forever yearning Once more to be returned